0: Yeah, Happy Palm Sunday. My name is Doug Reside. I'm one of the elders here. I'm not the usual speaker, but one of the things that I really like about our church is we get to hear from a lot of the the members and a lot of the the people in the church about things that they are learning. Um, I'm hoping we can do a little bit of that uh, with many of you later on in the the service today. So many of you might know... Can you hear me, by the way? Is this working? Okay, great. Uh, Many of you might know that I'm really into musical theater. I've written a couple of musicals I've been in a few um, and now I actually earn most of my livelihood by preserving musicals and occasionally by teaching others about the history of the form. So over the years, I've discovered that people generally have pretty strong feelings about musicals. Um, Either you're the lay Miz orphan wearing, uh, or t-shirt wearing, uh, Hamilton rapping, Sound of Music twirling fan, or you just can't understand why people are always breaking out into singing and dancing. Uh, musicals say that people who don't like them are so, just so unrealistic and cheesy. How many of you fall into that category that, that you think that musicals are just kind of silly? Okay, couple, yeah. Uh, and then a lot of uh, those people will go out and watch an action film and think it's great. Um, which, yeah. uh, but musicals, uh, like any entertainment form, have rules, uh, like action films or, or musicals, and you have to decide to accept these rules in order to enjoy them. The poet Coleridge would say that you have to be willing... To suspend your disbelief. One of these rules in musicals is that people in musicals sing when the emotion becomes too great for words. It's not the way that all musicals work, but if you think of musicals from about the late 1930s through the 1960s, it's a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, a place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? It wouldn't be a place you could get to by a boat or a train. It's somewhere far, far away, beyond the moon, beyond the rain. Yeah, anyway. So so you might have felt this kind of overwhelming emotion uh, when the person you have a crush on asks you out, uh, when you hang up after a call offering you a job, when you leave the meeting where you just got fired. We don't know how to express what we're feeling in such situations, and sometimes this comes out in tears or sometimes in violent actions sometimes an awkward dancing, <laughs> and sometimes actually we do sing. Um, maybe this happens most often in church. Many of us uh, have probably been in a service where a uh, pastor was uh, teaching and then kind of broke from the message to lead everyone in a song or a hymn. Uh, our, the former president, uh, Barack Obama, actually broke from his eulogy to lead the mourners of the Charleston church shooting in uh, singing Amazing Grace. He admits that he had planned this beforehand, but nonetheless, this startled a lot of the news commentators at the time. And something like this moment of emotion breaking forth seems to be happening in the passage that we're looking at today. The emotional tension of Jesus's ministry has been building for about three years, and now, Jesus says, the moment has come when the song has to start. That if it doesn't, the stones will cry out. This is probably one of the best-known stories in the Bible. You've probably heard it preached on before, and actually probably many of our fellow believers are reading it and teaching about it today around the world. The author of the book of John wrote that if everything that Jesus did were put into a book, the whole world would probably not have enough shelf space for all the books. Um, and so the, uh, the gospel writers chose every story that we read in the gospels very deliberately, each statement of Jesus, everything that he does, is something important. And in this story, he says that if the people are silent, the stones will cry out. So, what are we supposed to learn from that phrase? So, first of all, I'd like to try to imagine what's happening here in this scene. Jesus has mounted a horse, well, yeah, he mounted a donkey. Well, actually, a, a baby donkey, and he's riding it into town. Um, still, he's riding it into town, and the miracles, the healings, the teaching with authority all have some suggesting that this is a guy who might be powerful enough to lead a rebellion against Rome and their puppet governments and establish a kingdom after the fashion of Saul and David and Solomon. Jesus has been pretty cagey about his intentions so far. Sometimes he talks about the coming kingdom of God, um, but it sometimes seems like it's a spiritual thing or a metaphorical thing, but sometimes it seems like maybe he's actually a king that's coming in to supplant Herod and and maybe even uh, take over the throne of Caesar in Rome. And so the people who are with him begin to lay palm branches in his path, a sign of welcoming a king, and they sing a song, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in uh, the place where I work, we have a lot of old musical theater scripts. And in a lot of the scripts from uh, maybe before the 1940s or so, the musical lines, the, the lyrics for the songs in the musicals, would be printed in another book. And in the script, you would only have one or two lines saying, this is the song that goes here. And I think that's something like what the gospel writers are doing right now. When they quote the the song that the crowds are singing, I think they sing more than just Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we kind of know that from the different versions of the story. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we have slightly different pieces of what they sang. And fortunately, uh, we do have the lyric book. They're quoting from Psalm 119. Um, So imagine a crowd singing these words, as a man who might be your military leader and deliverer from years of occupation enters your capital city. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. And that's the word that I think Mark transliterates as Hosanna. It just means Lord, save us. Hosanna. <laughs> Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in our hand, in the fest- let us join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, that is to go right into the temple to the Holy of Holies. The whole script has been written before this moment, and even the staging has been written down. The prophet Zechariah writes, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your, kingdom, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So this moment is almost as if um, the pres- a presidential candidate who just barely lost a close election is driving down Pennsylvania Avenue on uh, Inauguration Day and a band of supporters start playing hail to the chief and yelling, God bless you, Mr. President. It's a potentially dangerous political moment. And it would be the responsibility of the defeated politician to acknowledge the legitimacy of elections and the supremacy of the Constitution. And in Jesus' era, things are even more dicey. The Romans generally didn't allow the people they conquered to uh, completely maintain their religion. They they allowed it to some extent, but you also had to participate in the Roman religious festivals in some way. But for the Jews, they've let them maintain their monotheistic religion. And this is largely because Herod was kind of supportive of Rome in uh, a couple of years and years previous. It's an uneasy agreement, though, and it seems as if the people are ready to rebel. And if that happens, things could get very ugly very quickly. Now, the Pharisees, who are also in this scene, so we've got the crowd. Jesus is entering on a donkey or a baby donkey, and the the crowds are all waving their palms and singing the psalm, and the Pharisees are also there, and they mostly don't like Rome any more than the crowds, but they're getting nervous. In the book of John, whenever John tells the story, uh, he writes that the leaders of Israel have gathered, and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And now all that they feared seems to be about to happen. Hoping to preserve the peace, they tell Jesus to silence the disciples. But Jesus responds that the moment is so fraught, perhaps with excitement both in the heavenly and the earthly plains, that if the people are silent, the stones will cry out. I think until I was preparing for this sermon, I've always imagined that the stones that Jesus is talking about are the stones that are on the paving stones of the road, the stones that the disciples, I imagined, were covering with leaves and covering with their coats. But as we heard today in the very next passage, Jesus talks about the stones used for the building of Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, if you, even you, had no one on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. My brother is a pastor in Illinois, and uh, he visited Israel a little over ten years ago with a bunch of other pastors. And one of the things that he remembered and actually sent me a picture of was this giant stone that was said to be Herod's stone? It's a stone at the base of what might have been the temple. It's so big that archaeologists aren't quite sure how it got to that site. It's apparently bigger than the stones used in the building of the pyramids in Egypt. Some of the people think some archaeologists think they might have just found the stone there and then set it up and used it to build the temple, um, and. Uh, But nonetheless, there are are these huge stones that are used as part of the building of the buildings in in Jerusalem. In Mark, whenever Jesus' disciples enter Jerusalem, they're almost like New New York City tourists. They're looking around and saying, hey, teacher, look at these huge stones. What magnificent buildings. And Jesus responds, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And in 70 AD, about 40 years after this passage, the Romans did come and attack Jerusalem, and they knocked down the temple. And Jesus suggests that this might have been avoided if only the people of the city had recognized what was happening. The crowds had cried out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, and the Pharisees had, thought, had sought to keep the peace and preserve the temple and their nation But Jesus says that by the refusal of the leaders to recognize the time of God's coming and their failure to recognize what actually brings peace, they've chosen destruction. The people who were waving the palms recognized that Jesus could save them, that he was bringing peace, and if they had been silent, the stones would have cried out to be rescued from their coming destruction. (coughs) The sad thing is that the people of Israel had seen this happen before. The temple in Jesus' day was actually the second temple built for God in Jerusalem. The first was built by King Solomon, and it was thought to be a dwelling place for God on earth. And even, but even King Solomon realized that this would only be true in a limited sense, because when he built the temple, he was asked to give a dedication speech, and he said, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And yet still in the days of Solomon's temple, God was specially present there. And the fact that God dwelt, at least in some special way, in the temple gave the people of that time an unhealthy presumption of security. They felt that Jerusalem could never be conquered because the temple was there and therefore God was there in the center of the city and God couldn't be defeated, so they were safe as long as they were in Jerusalem. God sent the prophet Jeremiah to correct this idea. In Jeremiah 7, God says to the people, God says to the prophet, Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, and there cry out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who enter through these gates and worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your deeds, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really want to change your ways and actions, act justly towards one another. If you no longer oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, Bringing harm onto yourself, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. but if you keep but look, if you keep trusting the in deceitful words that cannot help, you keep, uh, tru- you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? And then do you stand before me in this house called by my name and say, we are delivered so that we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which is called by by my name, become a den of thieves? Yes, I too have seen it. They didn't listen, though, and God's presence departed from that first temple. And there's a striking picture in Ezekiel In which the cherubim, who are kind of these heavenly beings with four faces, and they they ride on wheels covered in wheel or wheels within wheels covered with eyes, and they kind of spin out of the temple and then shoot up in the air, and it's crazy. Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, about 600 years later, uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, there's a new temple there, and it's built by Zerubbabel (laughs) and then renovated by King Herod. And uh, God has forgiven the people and has allowed them to come back into Jerusalem, but things aren't good. Jesus recalls the long history of God's patience and forgiveness and his people's disobedience in a parable that he tells the Pharisees. And he ends this parable. This parable, by the way, happens right after the bit about oh, Woe to you, Jerusalem, if only you had known that thing. Like the next passage is this thing where um, Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees and he ends it by singing a little bit of that song that the people were singing on the way in. This is a story he tells. He says, a man planted a vineyard and he rented it to some farmers, and then he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent uh, his servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, and that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love, Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid... And Jesus looked directly at them and asked "Then what is the meaning of that which is written? And here he sings, the stone the builders rejected have become the cornerstone, the song that they had just tried to silence. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Jesus is declaring that his entry into Jerusalem is a turning point in a spiritual war. Jesus has, be, has been preaching that the kingdom is coming, and now it's here. And we see two possible responses, joy and praise and the waving, waving of palm branches and singing, or fear and resistance in an attempt to shut the song down. The disciples with their palm branches give us an example of praise, and the Pharisees an example of fear. And we are left here in a log cabin in Austin New York in 2019, almost two millennia later, wondering what we're supposed to do about this and how we're supposed to live during this holy week because of it. And maybe when you imagine Jesus coming into town to change everything, it sounds like really great news. The idea that the current social order will be upended, that the rich will mourn and the poor will rejoice and consider themselves blessed sounds like really good news. And maybe you feel the joy in your, of the Lord in your heart so fully that you can barely contain it. And if that's where you are today, I think one message from this text is that keeping silent about your excitement in order to keep the peace is counterproductive. We don't need to become street preachers and proclaim a message that we don't really believe or, um, or obey, but neither do we need to be ashamed of our joy and try to contain it. And I admit there may be plenty of reasons to do so, In Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr is among the revolutionaries just before the beginning of the war. And he says, I'm with you, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're going to get shot. It's this approach to talk less, smile more that Jesus condemns. C.S. Lewis described the natural desire to share praise of something praiseworthy in his reflections on the Psalms. He writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight delight is incomplete until it's expressed. He writes, "It's it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people that you are with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to have no one to share it with. If you feel that if you are to stay, to stay silent, stones might cry out because you're so excited, then you should go ahead and be authentic and share your joy, not just with the unbeliever, but also with your fellow believers, even if they're Pharisees who may think that such feelings, such displays of feelings are unseemly or dangerous. And by celebrating, as we do here some Sundays, including today, our unfinished stories, the moments where we have seen God's kingdom begin to come, even if slowly, on a, fo- a colt, the full of a donkey, we help point those who are looking nervously over their shoulder at Rome for peace, back to the true Prince of Peace. But maybe you don't identify with the crowds. Maybe you feel more like the Pharisees in the story. I know I actually do. I, I can see why they would want the screaming, singing crowds to be a little more cautious. Sure, this lot of migrant religious zealots have nothing to lose, but, but I do. The worries of this life weigh on me daily, but fundamentally, I'm pretty comfortable. If the kingdom of God comes, it might mean my stability is overturned. I might find myself cast down like the rocks of the city, And it's easy to say to myself, oh, I have God as my father, I have Jesus as my savior. But I wonder if Jesus would say to me, as he did to the people of Israel through John the Baptist, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Over the last six months or so, we've heard Jesus's teachings and the Sermon on the Mount, do not be angry with a brother. <clears throat> do not lust after a woman. Turn the other cheek. Give to anyone who asks. Jesus said that those who keep these teachings are like the wise man who builds his house upon the stones. If the kingdom of God comes and it tears down our walls and upends our temples and violates our holy of holies, will what we have built still stand, or will it fall with a loud crash? Today is the day each year that we celebrate the moment when the owner has come back into town, and he comes to us gently, riding on a donkey, but he is asking for the fruit of his vineyard. What do we have to offer? I feel a little empty-handed. This is a challenging passage for me anyway, but I think when we think back to the two options in the story, the disciples, the wandering, effectively homeless disciples, who in their own words gave up everything to follow Jesus— They're the ones who can't keep themselves from singing and rejoicing on the side of the road. But the Pharisees, who believe that they can be both an example of righteousness while also maintaining the social status quo, are the ones on the side of the road who are anxiously pacing and looking over their shoulder for Roman centurions and trying to stop the music. The first crowd seems like more fun. (laughs) But how do we Pharisees join it? I think those of us who lean that way, we'll try to think of the most religious thing that we can do. What grand, heroic gesture of righteousness can I pull off this week to earn some more fruit that I'll pretend that I'm going to do and then forget about by the time lunch has passed? Um, The good news is that the great mystery of Easter is that Jesus, by his death, has provided fruit enough for us all and a foundation on which we can begin to build the house that will be up to code in the coming kingdom. The upended kingdom in which the persecuted and the poor are somehow the blessed ones, the lucky ones, means that the ultimately persecuted son has enough blessings to share with us all. He described himself as the true vine, and we, if we are grafted onto this vine, we will by his grace begin to produce fruit ourselves. I confess that even wanting to keep Jesus' teachings feels impossible for me, but he says that if we stay within him, that is, abide within in him and his true vine, we will begin to produce spiritual fruit, maybe even in spite of ourselves. If we abide in him, we need to listen to the next thing that Jesus calls us to do and just do it. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, by the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder maybe he's thinking of the wise builder in the sermon on the mount who built his house upon a stone and someone else is building on it but each one should build with care for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ but if anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood, hay or straw their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward, but if it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even as one escaping through the flames. Those of us who have put our faith in Christ have the true foundation. Let us consider how to lay the next level of our building. Actually, let's take a few minutes to pray and ask God, who we're told generously gives to all without finding fault, to teach us to plant, And what the next level, uh, the next layer of this foundation will look like so that we can survive the storm. And afterwards, I'd like to take a few minutes to share if, if there's anything that you feel God is telling you. So let's just take maybe a minute or two to pray. anyone have anything they'd like to share? Any next step that you feel that you're called to? Okay. Um, There will be people in the back wearing some color of name tag, green, green. Um, So if you if you don't want to share now, but, there's, um, but you would like to have someone to pray with you, uh, people wearing the green name tags would be happy to do so.